Okie dokie. It's a new year. It's a new life. It's a new lease on life. It's a new lease for your car. It's a new way of thinking about ourselves and the world in this very college show. Hello. Richard. Hello, Michael. Are you enjoying the spectacle? Uh, I have to say I am, and it's sort of embarrassing because I'm just one of these people who've, who, despite what I would hope to be, is just always going to be uh, drawn yeah. into like congressional minutiae and the ins and outs of these weird, historically anomalous events, um, which is not great for my productivity on other stuff. But hey, I can justify it. Yeah, I feel the same. I feel the same way. It's so stupid, and I, you know, I just watch this. So you seem to think that you seem to think that there's a serious like critique that these uh, people, these uh, these uh, rebels within the Republican caucus have. Because my impression is not really. They're just sort of out there for attention. Um. Well, I mean. I don't know that I could speak to the individual motive of all the rebels. And there are definitely some among them, like Lauren Boebert, who I don't particularly find that compelling as a political figure, um, and who definitely are more in the camp of sort of using their professional office as a platform for basically just public communications and social media cachet and just building a brand and, and, and that sort of thing. Like they're not legislators, but part of the reason for why they are, they're in that position, I mean, where they just sort of use their seat in the house of representatives as a launching pad for kind of, uh, <coughs> controversy mongering and things is because the structure of the house of representatives, uh, over the past few speakers, has gotten like unprecedentedly centralized where nothing cover comes to the floor of the House of Representatives without like the centralized um, leadership driven process that just can leave out the input of the vast bulk of members. So I don't know if you're like one of the quintessential examples of this is when the, the CARES Act was passed at the beginning of COVID and it was basically just you know, uh, drawn up in the office of the speaker in conjunction with the office of the minority leader. And it was similar in the Senate. Um, so, you know, there's a very good nonpartisan case to be made that um, sort of disrupting the rule of the House, uh, whether by Pelosi or Paul Ryan or now potentially Kevin McCarthy as this uh, party fiefdom, is uh, it's worth disrupting that that dynamic, um, and so and that's just sort of an overarching issue that definitely you could tell that some of these members are emphasizing. I do, I do think there is probably a personal component to this as well because you know McCarthy's uh, Republican leadership operation uh, spent money against some of these Republicans in their primaries, so that's going to be a uh, something that sticks in their craw. Um, you've seen them, you've seen them raise issues around wanting to get some sort of, uh, iteration of a, uh, church committee style investigation of yeah, security I state agencies. That's right. 
Um, he said yes uh, when a reporter asked him, is that sort of in the deal or on the table? Who knows exactly what that means? Um, you know, it's hard to really see something that is a bona fide successor to the church committee happening in the House uh, because, you know, the church committee was bipartisan and it doesn't seem likely that – Democrats are going to be on board with the premise behind investigating the agencies from the standpoint that Wilkins are interested in doing. Um, so, yeah, I do think that there's um, a legitimate uh, right here. At least I don't, I don't dismiss it offhand by any stretch. If anything, so- if anything, you got to sort of admire just the uh, raw political play or the willingness of the uh, faction of the Republican caucus to actually – wield the political power that they have to extract concessions or to advance their agenda. Like the Democrats would never do this, or it's almost impossible to imagine the Democrats, well, the Democratic caucus doing this because they're so reverential and def- deferential toward their party leadership. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I mean, I have a much sort of more cynical view of this. I mean, I don't think they, I don't think they want anything. I mean, I think they want to be on, TV. Is it true that that the uh, house has become more centralized because it's getting harder to run? I mean, there's all you know, there's these government shutdowns and there's these debt ceiling fights. It doesn't seem like it's getting you know more centralized. It seems like there's a lot more chaos, at least on the Republican side. Uh, whatever Republicans are in control, there's a lot more chaos than they than there used to be. I mean, I've watched their speeches and I thought, oh, it's like you know, Matt Gates got up and he nominated Trump, and the first thing he talked about is like, you know, Trump because he was doing bipartisan stuff and he did criminal justice justice reform um and you know we have more to do so like trump has to be the uh speaker of the house now and like they talk about like oh we need to nominate we're gonna have the first like they kept talking about how they're gonna have the first black speaker uh, with this <laughs> donald's guy and there yeah. there doesn't seem to be there doesn't seem to be much there i mean kevin mccarthy you know i i'm just my impression of kevin mccarthy is this guy will sell his soul you know if there was something he could give them that he would give them i don't think there's anything like mccarthy wants uh, that well, mccarthy's not giving them so i i don't i don't I, you know I think the, just these uh, knowing who these people are and sort of their background, I doubt that there's any real principle here. I think this is just sort of a you know way to get on TV and feel important and fundraise and you know God knows what else. Well, it's uh, it's indisputable that in terms of actual legislative process, like the process by which a bill is voted on and passed in the House of Representatives, it has gotten demonstrably more centralized over the past just kind of five to seven years. Talk, listen to what um, Justin Amash about this. Um, and he's like, you know, he talks about it from a you know, nonpartisan standpoint in that he indicts both uh, Paul uh, Paul Ryan and Pelosi uh, equally. And he says that uh, McCarthy is kind of this sort of the same sort of uh, character. But I, I uh, according, to, uh, Amash, Amash, according to Amash, there hasn't been – an individual member has not been allowed to offer an amendment to a bill on the floor without going through the centralized leadership-driven system since 2016. And so it's just a closed process. So if, if the legislative process is closed and it's all dictated from a top-down sort of command structure that the leadership uh, and the speaker you know, almost unilaterally control, then it means that like individual members who lack seniority or are not able to really do much on their own are going to end up kind of converting their offices into these PR operations, which is what you see people like Lauren 
uh, Bobert doing? And when you say they don't actually want anything, well, I mean, there was a draft just this morning. I mean, there was a draft of like an interim agreement that some of the Republican rebels came to tentatively with uh, McCarthy's whipping operation, and it included um, you know, opening up some of these processes so it's not all centralized in the hands. McCarthy says, like, so there's more, going to be more input from individual members on, like, budgetary items, voting for individual supplemental bills instead of, like, what happened this past cycle where it just gets glommed together into these mammoth omnibuses that they get a day to vote on or less and they, nobody reads or the okay. defense bill that gets, that gets folded into this ridiculous uh, water bill. Uh, through like these arcane um, legislative maneuvers that are controlled from top down by the leadership. So uh, if there's if they're able to chip away at that using their leverage and uh, causing uh, McCarthy to make concessions as to the House rules that will lessen his ability to govern the body in the same kind of iron fisted manner that um, Pelosi and Ryan did, then I don't think it's right that they're not seeking anything tangible. You could see tangible things that have already potentially come out of it. Now, some of them might not vote for like Gates and Bobert and, and people and this guy Klein um, from Arizona who's new. Some of them might not vote for McCarthy regardless just because they don't trust, they, they, they claim that they don't trust McCarthy will actually follow through on any pledges he makes. But um, at the same time, it, it's still the case that there are substantive so, issues. I, I mean, so I've listened to their nominating speeches and I'm looking at their Twitter and I'm looking at what they're saying and I, I see no hint of anything. I mean, I don't see hint of any of that. They're not talking about the, the process. And what do they want? What do they want the process to do? It's, it, it, there's no there's no hint of that. I mean, you could maybe make a like a smart case that that's what they would they would want. Um, you know, if you were like, you know, if you had if you were trying to exercise something. But I see no. I, like, I, I've been reading the report. I do not see that they want. Well, go to politico. I mean, go to politico playbook today. I mean, it's okay. it's all in there. I mean, all the details okay. are in there. It's these it's these uh, negotiations that are happening uh, behind like they, closed they want, doors. So they want it's led mostly by Chip Roy, who's kind of. Seen as among the more okay, reasonable. Okay, so inside McCarthy, the, is this about yeah. Ryan Lizza? Um, new concessions on the table. Here's what. Yeah, new concessions on the table. Oh, the G appears to fully acquiesce to a. Okay, so GOP leader has fully acquiesced to a demand to lower the threshold needed to force a vote. Blah blah blah. Okay, so he's acquiesced to one thing. Uh, rules committee seats for the freedom is appeared to give them two seats. House Rules Committee of the Freedom Caucus. Uh, there are also talks of giving a third Which oversees the amendment process on the, on the yeah. floor. That's what I was just talking about in terms of how the amendment process okay. so otherwise they want, they want, they want is closed and hyper-controlled by the leadership. They want now they're saying they're going to get – they're going to put Freedom Caucus members on the Rules Committee so rules will be drafted that – allow for a more open amendment process that would even apply to Democrats. So like AOC could also have more reign to propose amendments under a new rule kind of uh, okay. paradigm. So here's, this is, this is, this is uh January 5th. This is uh 6 AM. Okay. So this is like nine hours ago. So they're saying he's giving all this. Here's another tweet. The brewing deal includes a promise for standalone votes on each of the 12 yearly appropriations bills, uh, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So he's, it looks like this. So that's a deal too. And so, what is the things that they that they don't want that they're not getting that they that they want? Um, well, I mean, I, I don't. I, I think I, the issue is, I mean, apparently a like the text of the deal had not been presented at the time that this playbook article came out. So these were just the outline. This was just the outline of it. I've seen uh, you know report you know reports here and that that there's actual 
text that's been uh, reviewed, and like, apparently yeah. that's why the Republicans are looking for a call to adjourn right now, so that can be like reviewed. I don't know. I mean, you could you could argue that like some I mean, of this it, stuff isn't that significant, but it's I just don't think it's true that there's nothing substantive at issue, and there are some uh, like less high profile. Uh, Republicans who are involved in this, whose names you probably wouldn't know, who like are not particularly reputed for like being camera hogs and stuff. Like, um, you know, I mean, do, does the name uh, Michael Cloud or Ken Buck or Dan Bishop or Matt Rosendale mean anything to you? Yeah, probably I not. Know. Yeah, Matt but they're Rosendale, like in the group, right? Yeah, Matt Rosendale follows me on on Twitter. I know, oh, really? I know three of those. Yeah, the last three of those names. Yeah, I do know. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I've, uh, Matt Gates has been using my um, research of House precedents to report uh, <laughs> against uh, dumbass reporters who like don't read anything and don't know what the hell they're talking about. I mean, I don't know why this bothers me so much. Actually, I think I do. But like, you see, all these uh, journalists are saying, "Oh my God, the Congress doesn't even exist." Right before this call-in started, somebody uh, sent me. Uh, New York Magazine post today from Ben Jacobs, who is not the brightest bulb in the chandelier, who wrote, um, quote, there is technically still no Congress at all. What does that mean? There's no Congress at all. What happened to it? Did it sound like a time warp? Um, did it vanish under an invisibility cloak like Harry Potter and Hogwarts? I mean, what are these people even saying? It doesn't make any sense from like any logical standpoint, but they just say it um, because they don't look into the relevant House precedents. Um, they don't, I mean, there are sections of the House precedents that are available on the House website dating back to like the beginning of the institution. It's actually a pretty useful resource, which shows that um, discussions of like what actual status is conferred upon a member once the constitutionally prescribed beginning of the new congressional term begins. Uh, whether are they members of the members of the House at that point, with all like the constitutionally endowed authorities that come with that, or are they uh, still um, quote this new category, this other category, members elect, and therefore they don't exist, and there's no Congress? Well, I mean, there's a pretty robust precedent, including from Thomas Jefferson himself, who was of the mind that once. A member of Congress is duly elected, and what's the constitutionally okay, yeah. prescribed I mean, I, I've seen you talk about term? I don't care. I mean, I don't care. I, 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 don't I, know, I know you don't care, care. but like, it, but I, I, it's, it's 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 significant because they're using this nonsensical interpretation to dismiss the v very legitimacy of the uh, initiative here by the Republican rebels as just chaos and the cobbling American oh, government, which is just not true. That's just. I mean, they're just having fun saying, "Oh, there's no Congress. Congress is getting paid." Uh, I mean, they're getting paid, right? I mean, I, I don't know. It's just a silly, it's just a silly debate. Um, I think the McCarthy argument is that basically what they what they want and what you would give them would basically uh, make the House ungovernable and would probably peel off a lot of uh, uh, a lot of Republican support. So this this might be the problem. They might, you know, it's like uh, a minority has to defer to a majority, you know, usually. Uh, because if there's, you know, something they want and the other 200 don't, uh, 200 don't want it, I mean, then that's, you know, that they're just basically trying to get their way, uh, on what basis, on the basis that they're willing to take it far enough, I guess. I mean, but yeah, we'll see. But I, a lot of them say never McCarthy. I mean, a lot of them do say maybe there's both, maybe there's like, uh, attention grabbing, you know, uh, kind of like, you know, um, pol politicking, and maybe there is some real, uh, substance to it. Um, you know, I think that at least a handful of these people will not vote for McCarthy no matter what. Bob Good um, was a cop, and he said, no McCarthy. 
uh, no matter what. I think Gates is like never McCarthy. So I mean, it's getting to the point where you know I think that I think it's I think he doesn't have it, and I think you know, he he at least has five who will never vote for him no matter what. Uh, well, I, don't I mean, I don't know. Yeah, let me ask I mean, you this: have, have an alternative person. I mean, too. I mean, they don't have it. You know, they 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 go back and forth between this Donald's guy and uh, Kevin Hearn. Well, I think what they're trying to do is basically coerce McCarthy into withdrawing, and for the you know bulk of the Republican caucus to uh, nominate a new leader. I mean, they're not like they're not re- reckoning that they on their own with twenty or twenty-one people can actually. Um, get through a different person. It's like kind of just um, weakening McCarthy to the point that it's no longer viable for him to even stand. And then they kind of withdraw and settle on a consensus replacement candidate. <laughs> I mean, good luck setting a consensus. I mean, good luck with good luck with that. I think the most likely scenario is. Uh, I think the most likely scenario. Okay, I, I think the most likely scenario is probably some kind of compromise with the Democrats. I mean, the Democrats only need right a handful. Uh, they only need like four. And I think we're probably going to end up with that. I mean, that seems more likely than uh, these Freedom Caucus people coming around. Yeah, but, but let me just ask you this. So if the ultimate result, let's just stipulate, is that the uh, ch- major changes in the appropriations process that are outlined in this Politico article um, are actually implemented in the House rules, and um, there is actually a chipping away at the sort of tyrannical over-centralization of the House um, legislative process. Um, and there is, like, more of an okay, power well, of individual members to, like, you know, actually engage in legislation and not just have to defer to the dictates of the respective party leaders. Like, if that's actually what it comes out of this um, tangibly, is that... Does that change your view on it all just being like a publicity stunt? Yeah, and I mean, if they, if they end up, uh, you know, if, they, if that ends up uh, happening, if like McCarthy gives them that and they vote for McCarthy, I will say, wow, they had a substantive uh, criticism. They were just trying to get on TV. I would say that, um, you know, and then, you know, it's a different question whether the Congress will be functional at that point. Like maybe there are, you know, ideas aren't that great. Uh, but yes, I just think they want to beat McCarthy and I, I don't think they care what, what comes after, but, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll say, uh, I, I underestimated, uh, their commitment to principles, uh, if that happens. Yeah. Um, so, uh, <laughs> what do you make of all this, uh, human trafficking stuff? Because, oh, man. I mean, this is a rabbit hole, which... I had never really fully gone down before. I'll admit, like here and there, there'll be a prominent human trafficking case that comes up. Like infamously, Robert Kraft a few years ago basically was the victim of a st- truly egregious sting by the Jupiter, Florida Police Department, where the sheriff, on the day that Kraft was arrested at a massage parlor, was declaring that. You know, they rescued the girls who had been trafficked at this parlor. Yeah, yeah. And, and so on and so forth. And everybody was proclaiming Robert Kraft a pervert and guilty and a sex trafficker. And then, of course, the whole thing unraveled within a couple months. There were no girls there. There were all, you know, adult women in their 50s and 60s who had, you know, consensually provided, like, you know, yeah. manual stimulation. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. I uh, mean, there was no trafficking element at all. And so like, it's just, just, so every now and then something like that would come up that I would, you know, take a look at and be wary of in terms of like the law enforcement claims. But I, I hadn't really gone down the, like the, uh, theoretical, um, into the theoretical underpinnings of this whole human trafficking craze. And it's really pretty new and it's so ridiculous. It's like conceptual and definitional elasticity that it's uh, absurd, and it's also a huge component of U.S. foreign policy that I don't think uh, many people fully appreciate, or at least I, I hadn't. And so I, I do think it's um, worth taking a look at on a deeper level, whatever you might think of this Andrew Tate character. Well, I always, I mean, assume basically everything that Congress is freaking out about is uh, uh, is probably nonsense. Um, and this woman, I mean, this Eliza, I'm so glad to see you go after her because I, you know, when El- after Elon bought Twitter, I, I just started seeing her, like everything became on Twitter, just like Elon promoting Elon Musk stuff. And maybe it's my fault for like following Elon Musk. And I was being interested at the time, but you know, I just kept getting Elon Musk stuff, Elon Musk stuff, all these tweets. And it's like this woman, you know, thank you, Elon Musk. Like, and he'd, he'd respond like exclamation point, you know, glad to do it. You are cleaning up Twitter. Like, so it was like this weird, I'm a victim and like power worship thing. Uh, at the same time, and I assumed it's probably you know I, you know these. You know, and she I was bragging about being, about being like his confidant and advising him on yeah. like Twitter's policy look, related so to look, like I mean, child I always, or I mean, human I always, trafficking. I'm just inherently skeptical of people who claim some kind of victim status and then use it to comment on you know policy, especially something like you know sexual traffic, you know survive, to survivor or whatever. Because you know I was skeptical for you know all the reasons uh, that I said that this is you know that you could verify uh, that you know like how we define this thing and how we even verify someone's story. Um, and you know I'm not surprised that she's a whack job. I've, I've since you know the stuff I've seen tweets come out where she says you know she doesn't remember or she like refuses to give you like you know. Give give anybody any uh, details about her story or her memories hazy and you know it's like amazing like how you know the right-wing media sort of ate this up because they said oh this person sort of tells us what we want to hear which is the world is run by uh, pedophiles who hate us um, and you know this is like you know this is a very you know this is a very sort of strange you know and I was looking at this I was looking into this woman I mean, she's all over conservative media she's been on like Ben Shapiro uh, she's like she has like a series of articles at the days. yeah I, I've never seen someone uh, be treated to a more credulous tour on like the right wing podcast circuit uh, yeah, I mean, you know, um, all, all these guys, even like the more alt-right, alt right, like, not alt right, but like you know, alternative or dissident right. I don't know what the term would be, but you know, um, you know, even guys that like you know, I you know, tend to have like a decent rapport with. Um, she's been on these podcasts, like sit there reverently and just let her like use this rhetoric of therapeutic moralism that was pioneered by liberal activists but in this like vaguely right-wing kind of uh, connoted context and all of a sudden they're like just uh bowled over by it and you know in love with her and like affirming how brave she is i mean it's pretty embarrassing are you there richard uh richard you dropped out i think or um i can't hear you Um, hopefully it's not just me and Richard actually did drop out. Uh, maybe he'll come back, but yeah, I mean, 
Huh, Richard, I can't, for some reason, I can't hear you at the moment. Okay, people are in the chat are saying you dropped. I don't know what the issue is. Maybe, um, maybe exit the room and come back or something. Michael, I, or, I don't know. I hear you. Okay, you're back. you're back. You're back. You're okay. back. Okay, you're back. Uh, yeah. What were we talking about? Yeah. I mean, and all the, this lady, and the, the credulous, the credulous interviews that she was, uh, treated to on like the right wing podcast circuit, not just like Ben Shapiro either, but more, I mean, I don't want to name names and start drama or anything, but like some people who you would think might have a more baseline skepticism toward claims of these. Well, sort. I did see this guy like Brad Palumbo, like attack you for attacking her. And he's like, he's not like an alt writer. He's like a very like moral opposite direction. He's like this, you know, like gay centrist, like libertarian type, I, I, I think. Um, and he's like, you know, eating everything up. And then you have, you know, the, these uh, Blaze and Ben Shapiro. So yes, it's the entire spectrum. They are really into calling people pedophiles and thinking pedophiles are all the world. You know, it's funny because it's like QAnon popped up and it's like, you know, it's, it's like the, it became sort of, you know, it became sort of uh, part of the movement. I mean, I, I always thought this thing is like so dumb and it's like so far out there um, that it's like, you know, going to be isolated. Like it's not going to be part of the concerned movement. It's just like very old people and mentally disturbed people coming together and believing these conspiracy theories. But it sort of had a way of just like sort of filtering up and like a QAnon light is basically, you know, it's like not, not the stuff about like Trump, like going to execute all the, uh, you know, execute all the pedophiles or whatever. But like the fact, the idea that the pedophiles are like out there and they're like powerful and like pedophilia is like how, what they like to do and how they make your, and then human trafficking too. Like it goes with it. I don't know if she claims to be like victim of pedophiles. I think she says she's an adult, right? Well, uh, she but, claims you know, to be trafficked and somehow... And somehow she, and sometimes she she voluntarily like just toggled back and forth between being trafficked and not being trafficked. So like she was choosing when to be trafficked versus to not be trafficked, yeah. which well, I think so, which, which goes which goes adult. to the which which goes to like the the absurd elasticity of this whole trafficking concept. Like even the term trafficked, right? You think you would think that means something to do with transport, right? Because yeah. if you're trafficking somebody, it's been from point A to point B. Now that's also been collapsed as any kind of intelligible distinction within the term. And you don't actually have to be transported anywhere to be trafficked. You just have to be in a state of perceived coercion. In, in, where your like movement is somehow controlled by another, and also by the way, you don't have to even be cognizant that you're being trafficked. So the the victim does not have to have any conscious awareness that they're being trafficked in order to be a trafficking victim, because this woman says that she wasn't aware of it contemporaneously. Only when she met these nonprofit people and like. Um, uh, learn the language of human trafficking. Did she then retrospectively, um, uh, yeah, sort of designate it's, her it's, experience as a traffic as being trafficked? Yeah. Did this woman ever block you? Because she blocked me. Like when this was yeah, going she on. did block me. And then I was I was unblocked. Like like uh, I noticed I started seeing your tweets again. And then I noticed oh, really? that I, I had been unblocked like within like a day or so. Oh, okay. I hadn't checked. I know she did block me, um, but I hadn't. Uh, gone back to see if maybe she walked you know it's funny like you say i attacked her i know i know what you mean i don't know a lot of people well yeah i mean a lot of people interpret it as this like egregious incendiary uh you know unprovoked attack that i just you know viciously launched on her 
you know, go actually read the text of what well, I this, wrote. Well, the I responses just, are so stupid. Like, you know, like if no matter what you think, like she's a victim. So, like, or like, what do you, what do you have a problem with stopping trafficking? It's like the whole point of this discussion is like this started, and like the whole uh, you know narrative that you guys are spinning doesn't make much sense. So it's like, yeah, just be a good person and sort of just you know go along with whatever she's saying, which is you know not a you know that, that that's the road to hell. Or that people will say it doesn't matter if she's truthful about her backstory or if like her personal claim to sort of expertise on this issue is legitimate because look at all the good that she's doing. Um, yeah. And it's just like, okay, so what, what has she done exactly? I don't know. I mean, people just say that like, I don't know she single-handedly like purged Twitter of child exploitation yeah. content. I mean, people just say that I don't have any independent verification of yeah. that. I mean, like being true. Tweeted, like where, where's she, the, where's the, where's the evidence of it? Well, she liked to like Elon Musk, like, agree with her like so like if you go to elon musk and you say i'm a big human trafficking person and like you cleaned up t- twitter like what's he gonna say like you know it's obviously it is like no i didn't <laughs> yeah it's obvious it's obviously it is you know interest to say yeah of course you know these people are just kissing up to him it's so blatant like it's like you know it's like a way like just the, her like behavior towards musk alone is like you know just a you know a red flag this is like a clout chasing like you know a, not a very honest person the fact that she's just you know this guy buys twitter like how would she know like how does she know that he cleaned up twitter right she's not like a programming engineer who like went to twitter and like made sure that they got rid of all the human traffickers right so no, it's she, like, did, it's, she, did, she did a thorough data analysis determined <laughs> yeah, so, with beyond a reasonable doubt in quantitative terms yeah so you can tell there's so yeah so you can tell like there's something off with this woman just not knowing uh anything else um An- another interesting thing and you know forget this woman because like i mean she's sort of a distraction and i mean she started she was saying i was monetizing trying to monetize her trauma just like and my, my thought was i wish i could monetize your trauma because i make a lot of money <laughs> but unfortunately i'm not doing that yeah. um or, or at least I don't know what the hell you're even talking about or what that's supposed to mean, but whatever. I mean, she she does this whole, like, pivot where uh, she has, like, these, like, the standard re- uh, repertoire of, com- of, of uh, inquiry-stifling tactics that are more associated with, like, the liberal left, just in terms of popular parlance, like, you know, the Felicia Sanmez woman. Remember her from the Washington Post where, oh, like, how can we forget everybody's Felicia? a trauma yeah, victim. She's a trauma victim, and if you question anything she does journalistically you're compounding her trauma etc it's like that kind of style of rhetoric and style of like i know self-conception that she also has glommed onto but because like what she does has this vague right-wing amenable connotation it's accepted um and she goes after democrats and like you know insinuates that they're abetting like i don't know the proliferation of pedophilia um but you know leave her aside I mean, I'm just curious if you're aware of this history at all, because I, I looked into it a bit. Um, it was only in the late 90s, really, that human trafficking as a concept gained like popular circulation. And that, of course, um, without doing any real due diligence, Congress, on a glorious bipartisan basis in 2000, um, enacted the first uh, you know, federal legislation on human trafficking, which, you know, created a new kind of prosecutorial category signed into law by Bill Clinton. But one of the interesting components of it was on the foreign policy front where the um, State Department, and it still does this to this day yearly, um, makes these global analyses of each country's, um, you know, uh, robustness in terms of combating so-called human trafficking. 
and uh, uses like coercive uh, powers, like like sanctions or the threat of sanctions, or just like general kind of condemnation of the country's like governance structures to compel or coerce these countries into um, taking action to like satisfy the U.S. Uh, state, stated criteria on, on human trafficking. So, um, and you know, it, it, the, the most amazing thing is that. When, you know, readers watching the Post article that I uh, tweeted like a week or so ago that people flipped out about because I don't know, I guess they didn't want to read it. But um, when this bill was first being uh, deliberated in 2000, there was not a whole lot of deliberation, but like they just used made up stats that have like are like like supposedly these um, just like extrapolations based on guesses and hunches. And then those those stats like, you know. 50,000 people trafficked every year in the United States and so-and-so number of people trafficked worldwide. I mean, Biden made a proclamation of uh, January being National Human Trafficking Month in the U.S., so happy National Human Trafficking Month, Richard. Um, and he used this figure of 25 million global trafficked victims at any given time that if you look into the origins of it, it's just like a anti like a non-empirical surmise that one of these nonprofits conjured up and nobody really checks her questions and then that becomes like the um gospel uh, in terms of the statistical prevalence that's asserted of this phenomenon um, but anyway in terms of the foreign policy thing you know one of these countries that uh was on the u.s's uh, radar in terms of kind of co- coercing them into instituting certain human trafficking protocols was Romania. Uh, in, two, in 2020, you know, Mike Pompeo put out this whole assessment at the State Department of Romania where they were on like a certain tier that suggested they were like, you know, uh, derelict in their responsibilities to combat human trafficking. Sure enough, the U- U.S. Um, then funded a, a law enforcement initiative through an NGO uh, in Romania to uh, bulk up its uh, law enforcement capacity com- to combat human trafficking. And then, you know, there's the high-profile guy who uh, gets, you know, supposedly busted for human trafficking um, by the very same, like, a directorate in the Romanian National Police and um, funded by the U.S. in terms of uh, demanding that they secure more prosecutions for human trafficking. Um, so I don't know for sure. I'm not, but I'm, so I'm not saying like it's a, a conspiracy that this guy Andrew Tate was arrested, but I mean there are some interesting connections there that nobody really seems to want to probe at all because it means that you're, um, you know, supporting human trafficking or you need to have your hard drive checked by the FBI. I mean that's what a lot of people like to say. Like anybody who has any sort of critical or skeptical view on anything to do with this issue is like himself a um, secret predator. Yeah, I mean I could say things about that, but I uh, only have an hour today. So do you, uh, you want to, I, I really want to get into Ukraine a little bit um, and then maybe we can, we can take questions yeah. in the limited time we have. Um, yeah. So what do you think about this tank uh, thing? Well, it's apparently not a tank. <laughs> I mean, it looks like a tank. I mean, to the naked yeah, fighting vehicle. Yeah. Uh, yeah fighting vehicle. Person, if they, uh, like, so uh, today it was announced that, the U.S. is going to be sending to Ukraine as part of a nearly $3 billion um, tranche of new uh, armaments, something called the Bradley Fighting Vehicle. 
um, which is like a whole suite of different types of vehicles. And so I'm not 100% sure what model exactly is going to be sent. But if you look, and I tweeted this earlier, but if you just look at like what the standard model is, um, it looks like what most normal people would think of as a tank, um, you know, with a turret at the top and, and uh, you know, so forth. Like I'm not an expert on the mechanics of uh, tank construction, but you know, it looks like the thing looks like a tank. Now I posted a picture of like a tan colored tank and presumably it would be far screen for Ukraine, but still. Um, and you know, the, this is like, you know, again, beating a dead horse, but it's beyond what anybody had contemplated even a couple months ago in terms of the caliber of armaments that the U S would be sending to Ukraine. And it was done in concert with apparently uh, France and Germany who are also going to be contributing to this, you know, quasi tank provision effort. Now they can say, Oh look, they're not tanks officially, but I don't know. It's close enough that it's um, pretty clearly yet another intensification of the U S war commitment that nobody kind of even pays much mind to anymore. Just like with the Patriot missiles and so forth. I don't know. What do you make of it? Mm, I find myself wondering, like, what do you think that the Biden administration and these other Western countries are doing? Like we and you like can foresee and say, Oh, like everything that they don't provide now, they're probably going to provide at some point. Right. So it's like, Oh, first, you know, high Mars, you know, you have uh, tanks, you know, they say no fighter jets, you know, everything it seems like, you know, we weren't going to provide, and then we end up, we do end up no, providing. Combat so like, coordination, and then yeah. real-time combat coordination. And so they, I mean, they can, like, what, like, what do they think they're doing? Like, when they do this, do they think, like, okay, are, do they have a plan where they say, this now, we're going to, like, boil the frog, and we're going to, like, make the Russians, like, lash out right away, or we're going to make it seem like we're not doing that much, but really just keep escalating? Like, does Biden have a plan? Okay, in three months, I'm going to send tanks, and in six months, I'm going to send, you know, fighter jets. Or is it, are they just getting swept along? I mean, I, I really am wondering about this. What do you think? Well, I mean, you got to wonder at this point because we're, you know, nearing the one-year mark. So it's like uh, less than two months till the one-year mark of what is now a sprawling U.S. military intervention. And at a certain point, these interventions, you know, if you look at history and you look at just kind of common sense, they take on a logic of their own. Like there's so much inertia built into it. There's so much infrastructure built around the armament provision sort of uh, structures now that are in place. Um, there's so much and there's like personal investment. It becomes a whole enterprise, right? So um, I don't know that you could even really get out of Biden or Jake Sullivan or whomever a uh, concise explanation that they have in their heads as to like what do they hope to gain from the deployment of these tanks like i don't know that they could even really articulate it i think it's just kind of um they're kind of just on cruise control and the trajectory of this cruise control is like um, gradations of escalation and so they don't even i don't know how much thought they put to it because the one like if you're in these systems it's hard to like to uh, detach yourself and like take a broader view on like the meaning of what you're doing. Um, and so I don't, I don't know. I think it's just, um, 
something that's almost like his unthinking reflex at this point, or at least that that, might, that seems like it's probably a component yeah. of it. I don't know. What do you think? That's yeah. That's not my that's not my impression. I think that this is one of those things that Biden probably thinks about, and the people around him probably think about very carefully, and that they work really hard on. Um, and I, I think, think they think is, about it on like a tactical or practical level very, very carefully. I'm not sure they think about like the underlying sort of almost uh, theoretical basis for it. I think they want, I think they want to provide, and this has worked so far. I think they want to provide Ukraine as much as possible and they don't want to do it where it looks like it's any one step is too large. So the Russians freak out or, you know, it looks too aggressive or whatever. So if like you just roll out things like every three months, every six months, something new, right? You keep the war going and you eventually, I mean, give Ukraine everything. You make Ukraine stronger and stronger over time. And I just don't, I mean, I don't think there's a reason not. I, I think they want Ukraine to win. I mean, I think they want Ukraine to take everything. Maybe Crimea, maybe maybe they try to talk Ukraine out of it, or maybe not at that point. But yeah, I think they're, I think they're, you know, I think that they want Ukraine to take everything. And I think that's, that's the plan. They're, they're trying to figure out sort of the best way to do that. Yeah. And, uh, one quick, uh, one more quick point, and then we'll go to callers because it's going to be a slightly shorter session today. Um, but you know, I, I do actually think that one of the subtexts of this whole fracas in the House of Representatives does relate to Ukraine, right? Because um, the rebels, the Republican rebels, are um, overrepresented by you know at least ostensible skeptics of Ukraine policy, people who had voted against various. Uh, supplemental bills and so forth. Uh, whereas by contrast, the Republican leadership, notwithstanding that one fleeting remark that Kevin McCarthy made in September or October that everybody latched onto, no blank check for Ukraine, and then extrapolated inanely that that meant that he was this um, opponent of funding Ukraine, which is idiotic and not true. Um, but if you look at the actual House leadership struck in the Republican Party, so the caucus, like the, the Republican caucus, so McCarthy, Scalise, uh, Tom Emmer, Elise Stefanik. And then you look at the key committee chairs, um, Rogers of Alabama for uh, the um, House uh, Armed Services Committee. Um, for the House Armed Services Committee, the House Foreign Relations Committee, and the House Intelligence Committee, Rogers, McCall, and Turner, these Republicans, they're all down the line hardcore Ukraine hawks. So in terms Republican leadership in the House, it's it's almost unanimously pro-Ukraine um, war people. And the rebels here uh, that are fighting the leadership are all or, um, you know, disproportionately in the other. And so, like, if the the command of the caucus and the um, the control of the legislative procedure in the House, that that leadership was going to wield if McCarthy had just sailed in is now potentially going to be um, disrupted or, um, you know, dislodged, then that potentially has some policy implications for the ability to kind of just um, usher through without any friction, these sorts of Ukraine supplemental bills that had, you know, gone through in the, in the previous Congress. So I think that's something to, uh, I don't think that necessarily means that ultimately there's going to be a, any sort of real cessation in the funding of the war, but it's complicated. It could, um, you know, throw some monkey wrenches into the process. And I do think that's sort of like one of the maybe more unstated pretexts of this whole conflict, but maybe I'm getting, I mean, if they do get their way, I mean, I I think they'll do complain about Ukraine aid. Uh, 
But if, I, I think their problem is with the Republican caucus. The fact that the Republican caucus, I think, is probably on McCarthy's uh, side on this. So they get their way. It's all like they'll stop funding Ukraine. Um, right. It'll continue to happen. All right, let's go to callers. Uh, Matt, you're up. Okay, what's the Romania update? Doing great. So I've been reading a lot about Vlad the Third, but uh, I had to. I had to. I'd be remiss. Can you guys hear me? Yep. I'd be remiss if I didn't say there's a great uh, Pentagon Wars with Kelsey Grammer. It's about the development of the Bradley fighting vehicle. And the development process was like corrupt, even in terms of like Pentagon, like dirty. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, Kelsey Grammer's in it, and it's about how this one colonel was like, actually, this thing has no like literal use for any combat, and it's just designed to cost money, and it sucks ass. And that's uh, a true story about how this guy, he, the guy who wrote a book that's what the movie's based on, was like uh, sidelined in his military career for speaking out. So another, okay, another 1998 general, HBO military comedy film. I hadn't heard of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, it's pretty funny. It's not like you know, the slapper, but it's it's good for what it is. Um, I think Tidy wrote about the Bradley fighting vehicle too, being a shit show. Oh, okay. Uh, but I could have. Uh, wait, you mean it's a it's a it's a another Pentagon boondoggle, or even a worse boondoggle than? Yeah, it's like it stands out for the Pentagon. I can't I can't believe it. I'm shocked. <laughs> It was like, I mean, at one point it couldn't take, like, it kept exploding. <laughs> like, after they had put $14 billion into developing it. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of it. It's a yeah. funny movie. But, uh, yeah, man, look, the, with rehuman trafficking, like, look, there is something, a phenomenon you could probably describe as human trafficking. There's a movie called Lover Boy that was made in 2010. It's a very, remains a very dark people, but it's about, like, the guy that does the tactic where he pretends to be your girlfriend. And uh, sells you into sex slavery or whatever. But uh, it's actually a romantic comedy because he falls in love with one of them. But I just, like, you're right. Like, your instincts are right. Like, just anything you try to address, it's not like an emergency. It's going to be taken over by this, like, evil regime of NGOs and military industrial and blah, blah, blah. It's going to turn into a shit show, you know. So that's my take on that. But what I want well, to ask, do you want to respond? Yeah, yeah go, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say quickly, you know, the thing I don't understand, and, like, Richard, maybe you can help me. Is that what is this obsession with furnishing these new, like, vague conceptual categories to describe conduct that is already easily explicable by just ordinary terminology and common sense? Like, no, but if you could answer that, if crimes of rape has been committed or like uh, wrongful imprisonment or um, fraud. I mean, and those are those are chargeable crimes unto themselves. Without yeah, but like having, there's like, a new phenomenon whole, like, with yeah. globalization, right? Where you can move these people around and recruit them through the internet, and you know, so you could create like hypothetically, you could create this category, this technically other things, but you know, like a broad category for this new phenomenon that merged with globalization. But like your instincts are right there; like it's just going to get sucked into. It's going to become a boondoggle for NGOs and law enforcement and all these global blah, 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 blah. So you're, like, you're right spiritually. Yeah, and sort of be, be used for kind of cynical political purposes yeah. as like a power move by the U.S. Yeah, totally. to exert its hegemonic prowess as usual. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what it is, right? <laughs> like, I mean, that's what it is, even if it's even when there's things that are real, right? Um, it's like, gonna, you're going to be abused, you know? It informs 
It's like, you, uh, you think, you think Mike Pompeo, not abstract, think, but the libertarianism in the moment, yeah. right? Like, we, like anything you, they're going to do, they're going to fuck it up. Yeah, and you think Mike Pompeo was just like this pure-hearted, yeah. like, humanitarian who's deeply concerned about the scourge of human trafficking? Or is yeah. there, like, kind of more uh, raw, uh, real politique reasons why he became, like, an, inv- an evangelizer of the issue? Did he become an evangelizer? He's just, just a, he's part of it. He's the machine. He runs this machine. And part of the machine is, you know, doing human trafficking reports. Is this a particular passion of Mike Pompeo? I, I that. Well, not a, maybe a particular passion is an overstatement, but like if you look at just yeah, I mean he's part of the machine, but like when he puts out his statements on it, and I mean they're not <clears> these <throat> statements aren't like usually high profile, but like it's it's the most like florid language about and, and moralizing stuff, scolding and and all this. So Did uh, it? I mean it's yeah, it's funny. Talker, sorry. No, I just say it's funny because it's like it's like you want to go after prostitution. It's like people want to go after prostitution, but they don't want to go after the women. And the tr- human trafficking is a good way to put the hundred percent of the blame on men for just what is you know prostitution. So like the the men who buy prostitutes are are traffickers, and the uh, the men who you know sell women who uh, you know the pimps they're also traffickers, right? And so it lets you like sort of get the women off the hook. Um, it's like the abortion thing where they never say they want to punish the woman. They'll say, you know, they punish who helped her get an abortion. I mean, that's the, that's part of what's going on here. Well, it's, it's not just that. It's, it's, it's proclaiming that women who, even if they consciously and like explicitly no, reject yeah, it's like, their it's, victims, it's, it's, they are not just declared trafficking victims. They're declared slaves. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Trump and everybody else, Obama, one of the big things in recent years has been to declare that human trafficking is modern day slavery so these they're so they're enslaved that's what they're that's what these people yeah. say so the woman is a bit, how else well how else would they uh would they be like like eliza blue like going back to their trafficker and like you know it looks like they're exercising free will right but no that can't possibly be true so you know they're they're being trafficked they don't have you know any responsibility you know for their choices uh at all um and so yeah this i mean this is this is a uh you know just a very very stupid thing i mean it's like I, I think i told you before it's like hard to traffic like an adult right like to have an adult like you know have to stay somewhere and like you know be, to you know control over them yeah people use psychological manipulation against other people all the time that's true but it's not like a category for you know a new category for law enforcement yeah yeah and it's so right. subtle and all you have to do, according to Eliza Blue, is just claim that you're subject to coercion. Yeah, well, that's of course, the that, other can thing, you know, that can like, mean anything. I mean, that's not like it's not like objectively verifiable. Yeah. Um, and, and people in all kinds of workplaces feel that they're under they're like yeah. you know, under coercive uh, control by their boss or whatever. Well, that I mean, look, it, like you take. I think there's a big difference between what Eliza Blue was doing or was done to her, quote unquote, and like you know, some person told something in a village in Libya that ended up somewhere else. But I actually have a question. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, Sonola Cartel, not a big fan. Um, I've seen all these videos of the Mexican military taking them on and the Chapo kids on. Is, do you think that's real, or is this uh, sort of a publicity stunt? I haven't or, seen this um, Mexican videos of them fighting. Uh, oh, yeah, fighting they're coming out all these firefights today. Oh, I, I've missed this completely. I've been too... Um, uh, I've been too dorkily involved in like legislative procedure in the House and like you know president from 1901. I don't understand why everyone's saying. Like, I think the fact that we could only pass a budget through omnibus is a much more 
greater side of the Clyde that people are taking a couple of days to elect the new speaker. Who cares? Like 11 times. Who cares? You know? Well, yeah. And, um, <laughs> and I mean, the NDAA, the NDAA is even worse. I mean, the NDAA yeah. is obviously, you know, it, it gives the authorizations for what is then appropriated in terms of funds by the, uh, the omnibus. Uh, but it's all part of the same kind of corrupt, you know, nonsensical, uh, irrational process that, again, if, if it even gets decentralized a bit because of the efforts of, like, Gates and company, then I don't know. I think that's probably an improvement than if nothing had happened and McCarthy had just come in and continued more or less the status quo. I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I don't know why you assume that these reforms, even if they, that's what they want, if they would be good. I don't know if the House will function, right? It could very well not function at all. I mean, it's a big thing. So it's like, you know, you know, it's not the easiest thing in the world to make functional. In a lot of ways, it's not functional. So, you know, it could very well make it worse. I think that's the argument on their side. Yep. All right. Thanks, Matt. Mm-hmm. Right, take it easy. Uh, Johnny GL, you are up. Hey, guys. How you doing? Hey. Okay. Thanks for taking the call. Appreciate it. Uh, sure. you, you guys covered a lot of ground. I'm not sure where to start first. Should I stick with the trafficking topic since you guys were hot on that? Let's make it uh, a little bit brief because uh, Richard's got to go uh, a little bit early today. But yeah, whatever you want, just, oh, I just uh, dive in. Yeah, real quick. Uh, House Rebels. Um, I, I think it's noteworthy to think that McCarthy wasted the past two months and didn't even talk to anybody. And as recently as the first round of voting what was that yesterday, he still didn't want to offer anything and had like a number of rounds of voting where nothing changed. And, and I mean, it's good to see he seems to have offers on the table as of this morning. But um, shouldn't some some heat go to him for, you know, not counting votes as well as well, a certain Democrat, Nancy Pelosi? Um, on the uh, Ukraine subject, have you guys listened to Scott Ritter and Doug McGregor at all recently? No. no. The, the numbers coming from Doug McGregor are just apocalyptic. He's saying 150,000 dead and 400,000 casualties <laughs> for, for that Ukraine. Kind of analysis. That kind of for analysis Ukraine only. Yeah, I mean, I don't follow McGregor all that much. Yeah, I mean, he's he makes good points now and then, like in soundbite form, and I've even read a couple articles. But I have to say, I'm getting just sort of enchanted with these kind of I don't know, I don't know, uh, hunches that (laughs) people have and guys of analysis where they somehow know these figures based on what I mean, I don't know, I just. Yeah. I, I, well, I, I can't do that. Thing. I can't we bring have, myself to make those projections journalistically, but somehow they can, and I'm supposed to like bow before them. I don't know. I'm I mean, uh, he doesn't. You're right. He doesn't say. Right? Are we supposed to believe he's still got access to people on the inside, classified sources, U.S. satellite data? Like, I we don't we don't really know. But I mean, will the guy just make this stuff up? I mean, I mean, I guess he could. Right? There's lots of people that want to be celebrities on the internet. I suppose. Well, I don't know if he's making um, it up. making it up, but like, think he can think he's doing an educated guess. Yeah, yeah. Or he's, or, you know, he wants to see things. He, he's committed to a narrative that, like, Russia's doing awesome and winning. And so, you know, it sort of shapes his narrative. That's, you know, that's a, he's always been very, like, sort of optimistic about Russia's prospects. So that's how I would understand it. There was a yeah, good... I mean, uh, so Ukraine doesn't publish their own casualty figures, right, at all. So, uh, I mean, yeah. in the absence of that, any kind of counter-argument, you know, it's like... Well, yeah, and remember, uh, I think it was in May where the director of national intelligence, uh, Avril Haines, said that the U.S. has more kind of uh, granular understanding of troop 
uh, levels and casualties for on the part of Russia than it does on Ukraine, even though it's funding and arming Ukraine. Yeah. Now, is that true? I don't know, but that was what was claimed anyway, which is sort of amazing. Yeah. So, so I mean, how so how serious do you guys take? Do you guys hear that Ur- Ursula von der Leyen quote she let slip where she said a hundred thousand dead? Yeah, I, I, I saw, saw that. that. I don't know. How does she know? I mean, who knows? Yeah, she's in Brussels. NATO's in Brussels. I mean, I can't imagine the offices are too far apart from each other. I don't think it's crazy. I mean, I don't well, know. Well, I mean, because everyone knows. I mean, the more, most likely explanation is everyone has been saying 100,000 casualties, dead and wounded. And she just, like, her tongue slipped once. And then people are like, oh, she admitted like 100,000 dead, right? So, it, yeah, you know, it's, it's like obvious, like somebody would slip up at some point and say something like that. I mean, it's, it's like, like we're all looking for truth and we don't know if sometimes a mistake. So there was a good New York Times report on the, on the casualties on the Russian side. The BBC and like some local activists had went and like looked at Russian social media and looked at local news reports of like, names of people who died right so this is very solid so they did that and they count they came away with at least ten thousand russian dead so that's you know that's very you know that's a pretty a good estimate i can i can that's buy a, that right throw on yeah. another thirty thousand in total casualties i don't think that's crazy and a lot of those yeah. were um at the start of the war when they kind of went in very haphazardly not really sure if they yeah. were going to get a fight or not yes yeah, so, so is ukraine is ukraine is russia hitting you you know hundred thousand is russia hitting ukraine you know 10 times as many casualties as you know i i doubt it i mean that's that seems very doubt they would be well, doing a hell of a lot better if that was true well, so well that's the thing so scott ritter had said you know and i've seen quotes from some articles saying a battalion a day sometimes two battalions a day i don't like it's i mean you know it's just because there's multiple people saying it the plural of anecdote isn't data right so, I mean, you know, they could all be copying each other and listening to each other. But there have been a few anecdotes where um, Ukrainian mercs come out of the, you know, out of out of the front and come back and say, yeah, it's an absolute bloodbath. It's a meat grinder. Oh, yeah. Like, that, happens, that certainly happens. Yeah, that, that certainly um, happens. Yeah. The, yeah. The number of artillery pieces they're firing. And, you know, I, I, I tend to think that the Ritter McGregor crowd. Uh, it's probably closer to the mark. I thought 150 was jaw dropping. Like, it was uh, it was an interview with the uh, the X Fox dude there, Napolitano. But um, mm-hmm. I mean, that was jaw dropping. I was like, man, 150,000 dead is crazy. Um, well, I mean, I mean, Richard, can you imagine? I mean, do you think there would ever be a corollary of what the New York Times did investigating those Russian casualties by you know, getting the social media and contacting people? I mean, would they would they would it ever be like tolerable for them to do something yeah, probably, of the same milk with, with Ukraine? I, mean, I don't know, maybe maybe, but it seems like it would be like roundly denounced or it'll be it would be a taboo, you know, where it's as if it's not well they de- well they it was uh, it wasn't just the New York it wasn't the, actually the New York Times was just reporting on something. So it was Russian activist groups and like you know within Russia. So like the Russian government is letting them do this. They partnered with the BBC, which is interesting. I, I think Ukraine is a lot of ways, you know, has keeps more of a uh, uh, lid on the media. Um, so with the New York Times report, a Ukrainian group. Yeah, I think New York Times would do that. Would Ukraine allow a Ukrainian group to do that kind of research? Yeah, probably not. No. Yeah. Um, the last thing I'll mention, did you guys see the uh, Zeluzhny interview in The Economist where he basically asked for like a Christmas list worth of equipment? Like he asked for a whole new army. Uh, yeah, I did see that. All right. I mean, that read to me like you guys need to get in the war or we're going to lose. Like yeah. he said something like, I'm, I can't be held responsible for the consequences or I forget how he phrased it and maybe the translation was off, but it was sort of like you guys either get in or give me every, give me all your equipment or we're, uh, we're going to lose. Uh, so Michael, uh, before we, uh, 
uh yeah so, i can drop off from that that's all i got yeah, thanks guys. thank you yeah thank you very so michael before we go uh i just see this thing in the new york times matt gates tells us he has seen the emerging deal but won't support it why quote gates it results in kevin mccarthy becoming speaker so i think that's you know about as clear as you want that this is uh you know you're not it's, it's really about mccarthy well, for Gates, for Gates, it definitely is. I mean, Gates has made clear from even well, Bob Good, that Bob Good he has done that too. So at least, at least okay. two. We know at least two will say that openly, right? Um, okay. So he can only he can only use four. You know, if there's three people who secret, even secretly, you know, will never support he, McCarthy, he, he doesn't have it. Yeah, you got time for uh, two quick more callers? Uh, uh, really, I, I'm sorry we did this early. You got to go. I really don't. So. All right. Uh, Sorry, Gator and uh, Andrew. Um, I'm, oh, I'll uh, Richard. You can go, and I'll go to Gator and Andrew, and I'll uh, have to uh, despair that they uh, missed you. Okay, sounds good. See you All right, see you, Richard. Hey, Gator. Hi, Michael. How you doing? Sorry, it's just it's just me. Which I know is not that exciting. That's all right. Did you manage to get any haggis whilst you're in Scotland? I have had haggis. Yeah, I've had it as with the Scottish uh, with the full Scottish breakfast. Man, Which, I'm, a, I'm um, a big fan. I'm a big fan. Um, I hadn't known that it was a, considered a breakfast, but I guess, you know, in theory, anything could be a breakfast item. So, yeah, when in, when in Rome. It depends what time you have breakfast, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> on, the, on the human trafficking thing, I, I, I find it I saw your um, l- uh, look into these initial estimates of 50,000 across the border and the, the idea that ultimately when you drill into that, it's literally a guess. And I would say that um, I genuinely believe that you sim- people simply have to take a, stand- uh, um, a-, a credible int- approach of intellectual rigor to the entire problem. Because as you point out, how did anybody quantify 50,000 people a year coming into the f- country? There doesn't seem to be a credible methodology behind that. And if you start looking at sources about trying to scale the problem in any in any year, you know, whether it's a human slavery estimate that can be between 24 and 40 million a year um, or 40 million people in slavery around the globe. But it doesn't really explain how reliable that figure is. And that comes from multiple different credible ish bodies, big bodies. But also there is there is a, a definition issue as well, because as you sort of point out, um, how far do you have to have been moved, shifted, and how do you have to be treated to be considered a trafficked victim rather than, say, somebody who's been forced into prostitution or um, groomed and abused and, and other other various flavours of definitions of things in this in this um, in this world, right? And there's a, but but what I would say is this, and in no way do I want to diminish this, but there's a big political element to all these problems, which is the creation and description of a social phenomenon as a crisis in order to drive another raison d'etre for um, politicians as managers to then start focusing on money and resources and political campaigning and uh, on those problems and also bodies around to start latching onto those problems as well. And actually, um, I mean, a guy called uh, Adam Curtis kind of defines this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the in the management of fear or whatever the power of propaganda of fear or whatever his series was, and ultimately, if we do not really know what we're genuinely dealing with, then it's just like anything else. All things are a crisis. All things just get allocated money. We don't know where the money goes, and people involved in that world pocket the cash and have quote unquote done good work that none of us know have yeah. done what they've done. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's well put. But I, I would say that I do think the definitional problem 
bears on the methodological problem, right? Because mm-hmm. if it's gone to the point where now to be a trafficked victim does not require for the victim to have been transported anywhere, it's like kind of undermining what the standard definition of the term trafficking would have been. Mm-hmm. And, and if there's been such concept creep, even since the late nineties, when the first when the term first started entering popular circulation and when like legislation was first passed and there was this convention enacted by the UN that was um, prompted by the U S if even since then the contours of this concept have expanded so greatly, um, then how do you arrive at any kind of consistent methodology to ascertain the um, frequency of uh, the phenomenon or the prevalence of the victims or so forth. I mean, if you can't even define it and if it's so fluid as to what even kind of warrants assigning this designation, then you're kind of stuck in this conceptual trap. And that's convenient for the people who benefit from the whole sort of apparatus that gets erected around these sorts of issues, whether it be NGO or governments, and who appreciate the money spigot. Um, You know, there was just another uh, human trafficking bill that was sort of folded into these end-of-year packages in the U.S. that nobody really scrutinizes or takes an adversarial uh, perspective on because who wants to be, quote, defending human traffickers? It's like the lowest of the low, right? So they, they get away with it and uh, basically evade any kind of meaningful scrutiny given the intensity of the the two. And of course, a lot of the conduct that gets folded into the category of human trafficking is genuinely worthy of taboo. I mean, if it is genuine coercion or even especially involving children or, um, you know, genuine sort of uh, enslavement, which does exist, um, nobody disputes that that actually has certain moral content that is worthy of attention. But, you know, there's always a kernel of truth to a lot of like actually to, uh, phenomena that then get sort of exploited and um, made far more malleable uh, beyond the point of uh, rationality in order to advance certain financial or political sort of um, agendas or uh, prerogatives. And I think that's pretty clearly what's happening right now, especially because it can be discussed in such like hyper-moralistic terms. And there's always calls to action and um, declarations of, you know, modern day slavery. Wow, modern day slavery, that seems pretty bad. We got to do something about it. Let's declare a month of awareness. So I don't know. There's a lot of awareness being raised. I tend to think at this point that um, it might be everyone might be better off like uh, reducing awareness rather than raising it. I mean, I think we're kind of overdosing. Well, if you if you think about it from a simplistic sort of integrative policing point of view, and you're saying suddenly because of the awareness you've got an extra hundred million dollars, let's say, I mean, yeah. I, if I was if I was if I was in the cops, I would say, okay, let's integrate all of the missing persons reports ever with a new call for anyone who believes that their people are missing or people they know are missing to, to now go and properly report again. So we refresh all data and then get the IRS in to make sure that we cross check all tax records, right? Because what I'm looking for is then to go to IT and find all of the cam rooms that I could access in and look at how many cam room IP addresses originate inside the US or that we suspect do. Okay, and then I would start kicking in those doors and then I would check each person off that list of missing people and then against the IRS tax records and then say, okay, well, we actually found that 90 percent of the in 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 US cam rooms were actually legal. Uh, They weren't being coerced and actually 50 percent of them weren't paying tax. So 
bingo, we got we got a tax. And then we found 10% of those people were actually um, victims of some form under coercion or possibly trafficked. Um, and it, so the tax is secondary to that issue. And then and that would be a very basic, simple methodology which you could you could easily fund. I mean, because it's a largely desk based exercise, right? Until you kick a door in, and then and you could easily fund that with a hundred million dollars, right? To, to to just scope a data exercise just on those topics, which feed part of the trafficking issue, right? And 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 that would be a huge potential early win. I mean, I'm sure that there are elements of that going on, but there are there probably aren't there aren't a huge coordinated nationwide desire to get to the bottom of the problem because who wants to really who ever really wants to fix problems in society no one really wants to because as soon as that problem gets fixed the public money gets switched off right and suddenly your charity now has to find a new reason right to, to exist um or or the, or the politician has to find another cause and, and nobody wants to be managing a society that doesn't have a problem because there's no need for fucking managers then is there well yeah exactly and you know, the reason why there's such, you know, unbreakable, unshakable consensus on human trafficking as an issue where you hear, you know, Democrats and Republicans talking about it with just as much vehemence, for example, and using just as melodramatic of terminology and using uh, equally sort of uh, uncorroborated statistical uh, bases for their claims is, um, you know, for one thing, the solution to the alleged problem always involves expansion of the punitive powers of the state. I mean, it's yeah. very simple. It's like why, you know, it's the same reason why war is so commonly agreed to and um, affirmed as a valid function of the state because it then creates um, profligate spending that everybody benefits from it's the same it's the same with um human trafficking in a certain form right it's you know open-ended you know conflict that the state can undertake or like a war that it can wage i mean it's funny in 2003 bush george bush gave a speech at the united nations where he actually declared that like the twin wars that the united states were fighting at the time were the war on terror and the war on trafficking now, why was the war on trafficking in the mix there? Well, because it's a, it required similar state functions as the war on terror mm. in that you know, the, the uh, building up of law enforcement capacity and uh, funding new initiatives and using soft and hard power of the United States abroad to attain certain outcomes that were seen as amenable. Um, and... Yeah, I mean that that really I think uh explains it. So it's it's uh all the more I think cynical that the um potency of the moral underlying moral issue is so uh hyped and um uh, even exaggerated using, you know, bogus uh methodological uh tactics um because that is used to kind of deflect and uh excuse the just state action that is um undertaken in the name of that moral uh, cause and nobody wants to be in a position where they're seen as violating that major moral taboo and so everything just kind of persists without a whole lot of scrutiny yeah i i, I agree i think that if you're going to take this further w one thing that you should consider doing is is going to a, a very public well-respected uh data estimation of the problem and seeing how you critique their method of estimation 
because if you if because this this kind of approach needs to happen in so many more things too many people simply take their primary source as what they in a newspaper or a magazine and none of those are ever true sources particularly for technical problems like climate change or essentially I, I would argue that there are elements of human trafficking which are technical aspects right you can quantify um and define a lot of these issues right uh, to a, to a great extent which people don't don't necessarily absorb they just see a figure of 40 million people are being over in slavery and then they go oh that's terrible and then they, and then they, they've been preconditioned then to hear the next level of the story which is so we should we should sign off two billion in the next in the next budget to combat this and they go oh yeah okay and then they, they talk fashionably because now it's the cook the current thing right but actually actually they don't bother they don't really understand what they're talking about you know and and they don't think well is prostitution legal in my country is it what are, what are the legislative bookends that i need to be thinking about what are the what are the real issues that i'm being that aren't being explained to me but i'm being emotionally triggered to believe something without any detail and if you were to go and try to sort of pressure test the de the underlying detail and demonstrate independently that whether it's the un un or the who or or unicef or whatever their method is dodgy is is dodgy or credible either way you know, at least that would actually be a genuine contribution to something because it would yeah. scale, it would scope out your readers into a methodological tool set. You know, it would it would set that out and show how I did this and why I think it's credible or not. That would be a useful piece of journalistic work that, that is rare yeah, to well, see. Well, you know, there actually has been not so much recently that I've found, but like, let's say in the past 10, 15 years, um, has been an actually uh, a fairly robust literature on the dodginess of these stats in particular and how about how they're not based on anything um you go to google scholar and just type in you know human trafficking statistics and you know you'll you'll find a, a number of decent um decently well-reasoned uh, surveys um but really i haven't seen a whole lot of it that's like say within the past five years or so i don't know i think human trafficking has taken on a bit of a different connotation now where it's like less uh seen as less viable to like challenge the underlying presumptions of it or like the moral sort of considerations have shifted somewhat i don't, I don't know exactly but um like the equivalent of this 25 million figure that biden's proclamation sites you know there those sort of those sorts of groundless figures were around as well like 10 years ago and you would see like a bit of a pushback against them including in that washington post article that i cited where it shows that because it showed like when they were trying to get that initial legislation passed in 2000 i think it's the um the human trafficking prevention act or may i'm missing messing up the acronym but it was whatever the legislation was um it was decided you know in, in part by hillary clinton that they needed a figure to attach to the legislative cause in order to get the bill passed more seamlessly and so the cia just like scanned mm. news articles and stuff or a cia analyst did and came up with a guesstimate and then that was used over and over in the reporting so you're you're yeah. right that a lot of these figures are are phony but it's even worse in the case of human trafficking because we're talking about um not just government statistics uh that are uh we're talking about statistics that the government promotes that are groundless that are then used in the popular media as the 
unadulterated truth in an even more brazen and like unthinking form than you see with a lot of other issues. Because like, again, it's almost like taboo to look into much to the sort of origins of these figures. Cause who wants to be questioning human slavery or who wants to be questioning uh, trafficking? It's all, it's like almost uh, sullies you morally to delve into the topic at all from a critical lens. Yeah, there's one, one other thing I'll just say. I'll just before I go, Mike, because I want to just obviously not take too much time. I, I, in no way am I actually downplaying the phenomenon, right? I'm only arguing about the scaling and true technical understanding of, of the credibility of the problem, right? But I would strongly recommend that if you're getting into this game of, uh, of looking into this stuff, read a British book called Slave Girl. I've put a link in chat to it. Written by Sarah Forsyth, she was interviewed eventually by uh, in 1997 by a, an investigative journalist uh, out, output on um, ITV, British TV. And she was a British woman at 18, vulnerable, poor family background, ending up answering a job ad for a teaching sort of au pair job in Holland, went across, was abducted by the man, a British man and woman who had placed the ad. He was a pimp. She, the other woman, the woman was under his control already. They coerced her, kept her in Holland, had her working in windows, drugged up um, in the red light district, and it got worse from there. And that went on for decade, um, over a decade, I think she was stuck there. So read that book and you'll see a method of how people can be controlled. And it's important to keep that in your mind because yeah, yeah. it's not quite as simple as, you know, some people would think. Well, I mean, again, I, I just can't help but think when I hear you retell that, Okay, abduction is a crime. Forced drugging is a crime. Coercion yeah. into sex acts is a crime. Like, it just seems like it's this leap that's made in order to kind of come up with this sort of self reinforcing new conceptual category to then proclaim that this has to be something called human trafficking when like why why isn't abducting abduction sufficient you know i don't know that seems like that's not really really spelled out at least to my satisfaction but we should well i'm gonna move on thanks gator cheers mate take easy all right uh hey uh andrew Hello, Michael. Thank you. Andrew number one. You're Andrew number one, and there's sometimes an Andrew number two who shows up, but he doesn't, he's not here yet. Well, maybe I'll show up. And thank you for trafficking <laughs> me into the call. <laughs> yeah, I uh, almost, I know you probably won't believe me, I almost didn't call in this week, but then Richard started talking about Ukraine, and he keeps saying something that's getting me, like, irritated at this point, because I don't understand. I'll pass along the message since he left. Good. I'm sure he'll take it to heart. Uh, that I'm irritated, that he keeps thinking that the United States is trying to win this war. <clears throat> this, this shipment of Bradleys, it's 50 Bradleys. It's 50. So even if you want to pretend that every it's a other, number, isn't it? N- well, do you remember the thing by the uh, economist interview? I wanted to back up what Johnny was saying, and I don't think it is a decent number unless you take every single country, France, Germany, UK, and you – you know, each of them give 50 of some equivalent, which I don't think they have to give. I don't know that off the top of my head. But the point being uh, what Johnny was talking about with the Economist articles, Jaluzny was saying specifically he needed, I believe he said 300 tanks and either five or 700 uh, infantry fighting vehicles, which is what these Bradleys are. And this is 50. <clears throat> and that's he was saying that wouldn't even be to take Crimea. That would be to take a city called Melitopol, which is on the southern coast of Ukraine, halfway between Crimea and Mariupol, and then they could launch HIMARS at Ukraine. So this whole thing is like very 
stunning to me that people think that we're trying to win this war when we're giving them 50 Bradleys. And I don't know what the commitment across Europe is, but that's not enough, even according to Zeluzhny. Well, yeah, I, mean, I, I think that's a good clarification to make because, you know, remember, what did Neil Ferguson say in his Bloomberg column in March of last year? I know I'm getting over specific, but he put out something where he uh, was quoting an administration, a, a top administration official who had been overheard at some function who exp who explained the U.S. policy toward the Ukraine war as, quote, bleed Russia dry, right? Um, which is subtly different from winning. Correct. Right? It's pro it means protraction of the war, incremental escalation that, you know, isn't too flashy or dramatic in any one individual instance. Um, but, you know, kind of get keeps the gears in motion to just fund a perpetual... Um, and, you know, I actually heard something myself that uh, corroborated that from a, uh, a source that I verified who um, kind of affirmed that that was the, the theory. Um, I know I'm being vague, but it I I gave cre even more credence to that report once I heard something personally myself from somebody who was credible, who was in a position to know. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's the there's no reason to think really that that has changed. Uh, I think it might get. I think it, that the that overall objective can like evolve in its practical implementation, um, and it doesn't preclude that like a uh, uh, concomitant like escalation can happen through the provision of different sorts of armaments and so forth. But um, yeah, I do think it uh, it does seem a bit like, like if the United States wanted to just have the war won overnight, right, that's like the it has the resources to do that. Um, and yeah, it, it, it wouldn't be this like incremental trickle. If you, if Russia was on our border, do you think we'd be like, well, we don't, you know, we can't win this without, we're going to arm Mexico. If this was existential for us, which is what Obama meant, I believe about the Russians having the upper hand on escalatory dominance in this area mm -hmm. that we're not going to go to the mat. I mean, if we really wanted to even seriously fight Russia, what we would do, I think, before even sending a single U.S. person is give the green light to Poland and just say, hey, go in and do whatever you want, basically. And right. <laughs> I don't think we're even close to there, thankfully. So this this idea that we're trying to win, I, I don't know what that even means. And it's not fair because Richard's not here, right? Because he, he maybe he means that by bleeding out Russia, that is a win. And the sanctions and the bleeding, you know, uh, is a win. But I don't think he's that cynical. I think he means that he really thinks that the U.S. is trying to help Zelensky, you know, win and regain the territory. Like, I yeah. just don't understand. You know what I mean? It's And it, it makes me go, it's the problem I always have. Our, is our leadership that incompetent that they really think and they're acting like 50 Bradleys? which are referred to as exploding coins by our own military because, you know, they don't have the best track record, as, as other people have mentioned. That's not enough. And Zeluzhny asked for, you know, Zelensky just came here and asked for stuff. He didn't get it. Zeluzhny gave it list. He's not getting it. And yet we still have people sitting here telling me that, no, no, we're trying to win the war. It's just like, how? How are you telling me this? You know what I mean? I, I'm sorry. I'm kind of ranting. But it, it does baffle me because I find he's a smart guy. Um, I guess, you know, maybe to play devil's advocate, I mean, don't you think that even if the 
installments of weaponry that are introduced every so often are not nearly sufficient to just make that real decisive push to quote unquote win the war. Um, Don't you think it's possible that they could reason that, you know, they're managing different incentives or they're managing different considerations in um, overseeing what they to be a victorious Ukrainian war effort in that they like, let's say they don't, I mean, let's say Biden is sincere. And I think it's probably true that he is sincere when he says like, he doesn't want world war three. I don't think it means that much necessarily in practice. If like you're still directionally making more likely world war three with each new installation of quote unquote aid. Right. But um, let's say like he actually is sincere in trying to at least on some level thwart that potentiality. Um, Maybe he thinks that, you know, the more responsible way to engineer victory is this but far more gradual process um, where you know, it is true that Ukraine did make some gains in the counteroffensives and so forth in the past couple months. And um, so, you know, maybe it's it's like it's a, be a large high, it's, it's, a, it's a species of victory that they're going for. Right. Not overnight, not overly dramatic, not not um, that minimizes risk. But nonetheless, it's still a species of victory that they're looking to attain eventually, um, especially yeah. if they're trying to weaken, bleed Russia dry and weaken Russia and like kind of foment the conditions whereby there could be some potential uh, regime change down the line. They would all they would see that as a victory. So I think I think they actually are wanting to win the war. It's just not like overwhelming, like, you know, shock and awe victory, Baghdad 2003 style winning. It's a different sort of species of winning that that they're pursuing with um, with different constraints and incentives uh, on top of it that have to be managed and, and navigated. Yeah, I guess they think they're going to drive Putin to the negotiating table. Right. That's that's the idea. I guess uh, maybe uh, because they, they can't think they're going to get them out of Russia militarily. I can't believe that. Well, that that how how could they win that way? I mean, they there's nothing that stops Russia from mobilizing again. Yeah, I, I don't see that as a realistic possibility. So, I mean, the the goal would be get them to the, Putin and negotiate something. I guess. I, well, that's I'm why I think to be that's sure. why. I, well, that's why I kind of like have. To, I would sort of reiterate what what I a version of what I said to Richard was that I'm not certain that these people in like the Pentagon or the State Department or the or the White House really could give a fully coherent answer to what it is they're pursuing. I, I don't know. I'm not sure if well, they, you know what it is. They say what that's up to Ukraine. They just that's what they say. Heard. That's what they yeah. say. But I'm saying if you could get them in private, like if you oh, could see all the key decision makers in private, right. in like the White House and the Pentagon and whatever, it's like what you know, forget the what. Uh, Nothing without you. Nothing without Ukraine. Blah blah blah. That Ukraine calls the shots mantra that they've been repeating. It's like, what is like the actual strategic imperative that the, the United States can help achieve, and like, what are they pursuing? I think it would be like a different, a bunch of like maybe conflicting answers that you'd get, I or agree. Like it wouldn't necessarily be a coherent uh, answer that's like in a lockbox somewhere that we just that could like be uh, ascertained, and then we'd know the answer, right? Um, I think I, I think a lot of the answer now probably is to just this general sort of inertia, bureaucratic momentum, um, uh, you know, frogs boiling in the in the slowly heating uh, pot, right? Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's I, I, 
I, I, I can see that. I, it's just uh, a lot of conflicting views in general in, in, in our government, I would imagine, about yeah. you know how aggressive they really want to be. And, uh, and that, was the, just, that was the case for Vietnam. Not like the that's what I was just going to say, yeah. is Vietnam, it reminds me of. And also the lack of uh, information and the fact that we, you know, Americans were told we were winning in Vietnam. And the whole time you'd see soldiers come back and say that, you know, obviously that wasn't the case. And they would read stories in the news and have no idea. The disconnect was so great. And I think you can see that here, too. So it's, I don't know about 150,000 dead, but I just see this as much different than Richard, I guess, fundamentally. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll, I'll thanks for your time. Yeah, yeah right, definitely do. Uh, all right. And finally, uh, Jenny. Hey, Jenny. Hey, I was in the queue earlier and then I had to drop off. My husband and I watch Jeopardy every night and read our scriptures. So I'm back. Oh, okay. I was going to talk to you about. you're doing something wholesome. What? At least you were doing something wholesome. I like to think it's more wholesome than my calling anyway. (laughs) Well, I wanted to talk about the vote, but then I heard you talking about human trafficking Uh and that's kind of my beat. And so I'm not here to spank you. Like I saw you getting whacked pretty good on Twitter. And so that's not what I (laughs) intend to do. What, What I would like to do is for you and your listeners to broaden your thinking about what it looks like, because it's easy Mm -hmm. to see, you know, Laura Silsby, Hillary Clinton's friend trafficking kids out of Haiti and say, you know, this is what it was. She was arrested for that. You know, um, that's not what I'm talking about. They're, the most sinister form of trafficking is when parents pimp out their own children. And I told mm-hmm. you about a case that I was covering in Utah right. of these traffickers and, and they pimping out their own girls. And I grew up in a family where my dad was doing that with me. And so okay. that's why this Utah case has such a place in my heart because when you're that little kid, you know, under the age of eight, being trafficked by your own dad to friends, people who have lots of money, um, it messes with you in every possible way. And um, there's a lot of dissociation if it happens before the age of eight. You have a tendency to remember this stuff, and I didn't. I did not start putting it all together until I was 33. And so it's almost impossible to prosecute because you're just going on memories and corroboration is almost impossible. And then, you know, your perpetrator, my dad's dead, so your perpetrator's dead, so there's nobody to prosecute. So it's very difficult to to get justice for this type of crime. And yet in this Utah case, these daughters of these people. Jenny, sorry, just really quickly. Wasn't, were you talking not long ago about how your father knew uh, Lee Harvey Oswald? No, that wasn't me. I did hear somebody call in and talk to you about that, but that wasn't me. Oh, was that you? I'm sorry. I confused with somebody else. I I withdraw that. Okay. I called in to tell you about this case in Utah involving. Yeah, yeah, no, I remember that. A prosecutor named David Levitt. Sorry, sorry I conflated you with another woman. No worries. The, the only goal that I have with having this conversation with you is to just broaden out your thinking about who, what, where, away from. No, the- I get it. Well, can I can I just ask you something though? Because obviously it's a sensitive subject, so I don't want to probe too deeply necessarily. But like, just let let's let's not even personalize it. Let's just say, uh, in general, if a parent does pimp out a child for a sexual to provide sexual services or or whatever. You know, that's, that's child 
endangerment, that's um, sexualization of a child in, in a manner that is easily criminalizable under all manner of just like existing statute. Um, so if like a child actually is forcibly placed in a position where they're kind of coerced into like performing sex acts um, on an adult, like that's, that couldn't be any more straightforward, like criminal activity. So I guess I'm just not clear as to why it has to be sort of um, roped into this whole kind of broader, more nebulous category of trafficking. Like why is that like a necessary descriptive ingredient of like what that phenomenon is of, you know, well, if you're clear, blatant child sexual exploitation. If you're being trafficked to a house in another community or another state, and it's mm-hmm. still still a parent doing it, that's that's trafficking. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're kidnapped. And so, right. this Utah case um, in 2014, the prosecutors were ready to go to court, and they had filed all these victim statements. They were ready to go, and then the victims backed out. They didn't. They didn't want to do it. So the judge dismissed the case without prejudice. And what that means is, is if any more evidence comes forward, we can open this right back up. And so last year, that's what they did. Some more victims came forward, corroborated the daughters who had made these claims about their parents. And here we've got this new case. And when the sheriff came out in June of this year and said, you know, we're opening this case back up. You did this publicly. Any other victims contact us. They had over 100 people contact the sheriff's office with new information and we did have an arrest the main guy was arrested but there were many people involved in this network trafficking these kids trafficking their own kids and so this case i'm telling you it's about to blow it's this humongous case that's coming in utah and i i feel so passionate about it because of what happened to me as a kid and because i don't think i'm going to get justice for what happened to me, but I would love to see those other people get some justice. And so whether it's child trafficking or prostitution or whatever, this is just something that I have written about a long time. And I think the numbers of the people today pimping out their own children for money would, would cause you to just gasp. It's so staggering. (laughs) I've heard it said that you can, you can procure a child off the internet as easily as you can order a pizza. Sorry, sorry to chuckle at that. I, I would hope that's not the case. No, it's, it is. It's, 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 it's dangerously easy for me to order a pizza. Um, that's right. That's the point. That's the point. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I appreciate your explanation. I'll keep an open mind. I guess I, I will just say, though, that I can't help but have this um, nagging feeling that the concept of trafficking is very slippery and often difficult to pin down with any precision and if it's what we're talking about for example is a case of parents legitimately um, like providing their underage children to other adults to forcibly uh, require them to have perform sex acts um, to me, I'm just not sure, like, why the trafficking is the most important component of that. Like, does it matter if, like, they're moved from point A to point B? The crime is the coercion of a child to engage in a sex act with an adult. I mean, that's so straightforwardly criminalizable and uh, morally uh, condemnable 
that I, I guess I'm just not sure of the utility of uh, putting well, it under this umbrella of trafficking, which can refer to all kinds of different things and is, again, very um, definitionally uh, elastic and, and uh, sometimes ambiguous. Think of it this way, because this is how I separate it in my own mind. You have incest. You have family pattern incest, where there's lots of illegal stuff going on between adults and kids. And then you have that next level of, oh, I'm going to make some money pimping out my own kid to these other people. I can separate out incest from trafficking. Trafficking is, yes, I'm going to go hand my child over to someone in exchange for cash. And that's what happened to me. And so I call that trafficking. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, that that, that makes sense. I guess uh, I, I don't have as much of a problem with the term being used colloquially or to, to be to use to describe like individuals uh, experiences, I guess maybe I'm more referring to its use as, you know, a, ma a matter of law or within these like um, international uh, structures or for more like official, like uh, state backed purposes that um, where the uh, seeming ambiguity of the term is used as like leverage or it's used as a uh, point of like kind of marshalling state power toward a whole variety of different ends or it's like more more right for potentially like you know exploitation or manipulation or uh, abuse of power so maybe that's like maybe if I were to maybe narrow my skepticism onto something a bit more concrete it would be like that dimension of it more so than people like using it as just a uh you know a uh, I don't know a heuristic to sort of understand like this sort of multiplicity of different phenomena so I don't I definitely don't well and to your point about reporting and the legal system getting involved I tried to report this once there was a second victim who confirmed to me yeah my dad molested him too and um I grew up in Detroit and now I live in Colorado so I just called the local jurisdiction where our house was, they said, you have to come in in person. I was like, can't you just take it over the phone? I'm disabled. I can't even travel. And they're like, nope, you have to be here in person. So they were not even willing to document it. And my dad had already died. I, my feeling was when you have a pedophile, there's victims all over the place. And for the sake of those other victims, I wanted them to know that this man had had a claim, his own daughter had said, yes, this happened to me. So that if they reported it too. They could have some corroborating evidence. And that, that side of it too is very frustrating, especially when it happens decades before. I'm, I'm in my 50s, you know, in the 70s, this happened. I didn't remember any of it. I didn't re remember any of it for years. And yet it's so still so much on my heart to help the other victims who were perhaps raped and molested by my father, you know, and help yeah. reach out to them. And I, I don't know how to do it. Right. Well, um, that's uh, heavy. So uh, I, uh, I wish you luck. Um, I'm try. I'll, I'll try to like you know incorporate what you said there into my my thinking on the subjects. I don't want to come across as um, too uh, cold hearted or anything. But uh, you know, it's it's a difficult thing to sort of it's a difficult well, issue you, to, you to navigate in a uh, in a you know, a sensitive, kind of but also like it. resolute way in terms of the potential um, flaws of how this is being uh, kind of, you know, utilized in different contexts. So, When you were kind of dogging that, that gal who Elon had retweeted, who's the quote expert, 
and you were like, what makes her an expert? You know, and, and as, as I read your tweets, I was like, well, I'm an expert just based on what I grew up with. And then the yeah. years I've spent as a journalist talking about this and writing about this, you know, but nobody would give me some sort of a badge right. to say, Jenny, the expert, you know, yet it's everything I know. And so um, I just, that would be my caution going forward is just, especially when you're talking to people who've, who've just been wounded by this, you know, almost. Right. I, you know, I, 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 do think, I do think though, that if somebody is going to get into the public policy arena and, you know, be talking they're advising politicians and majors and CEOs of major corporations and um, the FBI and they're demanding policy reforms and they're uh, calling for law enforcement action. And, you know, they're professional activists who are willfully entering into the public domain and like attempting to invoke their personal background as like the source of their authority to engage in this activism, then I just don't think it's tenable for it to be declared that that background is totally off limits for any scrutiny or inquiry at all. Um, it's not like you're just a private citizen who's all of a sudden whose privacy is being invaded. They've chose she and like, you know, others of that ilk of they've chosen to relinquish any claim to privacy because of the role that they've taken on for themselves. So I, I think it's, it's, no, a bit, I, it's a bit manipulative to like, to take that kind of public um, posi- uh, role and then claim that no one in the public can like critically examine your role. I agree with that. I don't believe in victims kind of covering, you know, you can't touch me, you can't question anything, but you know, I've been, in mental hospitals four times because of the trauma that I experienced as a kid. And so it would be so easy to just dismiss me and my voice and my testimony as, Oh, she's just mentally ill, you know, so you can't trust anything well, she says. I, I didn't say that of her either. I mean, I didn't, it's, it's what's people took it as this attack. Um, well, I mean, all I did was just collect a couple of quotes from her as to how she described her experience and, uh, you know, put it in a, maybe a different sort of uh, framing than people had uh, seen before. And that was seen as this, like, you know, incredibly uh, vitriol attack on her, which is like, I mean, if I wanted to attack her, I could have been like called her some mentally ill or something, which I hadn't had to die. It's just they see any kind of critical examination of the figures who kind of appoint themselves spokespersons for this issue as like inherently an attack. Um, which kind of gets to like the the problems of like the wider taboo and like is there even an ability to engage rationally on this subject without necessarily it being construed that like either you're a sicko predator yourself or you're so callous that you're just like you know um, indiscriminately going around attacking survivors or something. I mean that's not my, my intent at all. Um, well, I, that's I, what that's make, I see someone making public policy prescriptions and like, par- you know, yeah, parroting certain kinds of language that I don't necessarily think is rationally grounded and um, make, you know, talking about their own personal background and, as though it endows them with certain authority to engage in the public arena and, you know, reacting uh, accordingly. I don't think it's I don't think of it as an attack. And if they do think of it as an attack or others do, well, I don't know, I guess I think you have to examine why it is that you view it that way. No, I agree with that. I, I think that's fair. And, you know, this case in Utah, the guy who was one of the perpetrators, that was his defense. 
this woman is tragically mentally ill. He said it a couple of times during his press conference. And he, he it was like he could just say, we're just going to whisk all this away by calling her crazy. And because that's how my family has responded to my claims. Oh, man, that that was that was harsh. So, thanks for right, letting well, me talk about thanks, it. Jenny. Appreciate it. Can't wait to see what happens with the House vote. Uh, well, they, they've adjourned at the moment till uh, noon tomorrow, apparently, and then we'll uh, start back up again, I guess. I, uh, I'm not a, if I'm rooting if for anything, I'm sort of rooting it just to continue because it means Ted Lieu cannot get briefings on classified information, apparently, and he's just whining about it on Twitter. Um, <laughs> I, 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 whatever, whatever causes Ted Lieu to feel like he's, his um, activity is being constrained. Or like he's not been able to do what he wants to do. If I'm like, you know, busybody national security nonsense. He's like an eighth grade girl. Favorite. I mean, these people are so, st- I mean, they're, they're so dumb. I mean, they don't understand like just the nature of the position they hold. I mean, they, they've, they've never read the house precedents. They've never read like the founding sort of uh, doctrinal statements as to what the house of representatives is. They think, I mean, when, when Ted Lou says he's not allowed to get classified briefings, like, on whose authority? He's an autonomous member of an autonomous legislative body that every two years has its slate wiped clean and can make law using whatever parliamentary procedure they choose. I mean, T- Ted Lieu, if he was really so um, uh, you know, uh, desperate to get a classified briefing on, like, the latest uh, social media bots coming out of Russia, he could um, introduce a motion in the House to uh, grant him the authority to do it. I mean, there, there are legislative mechanisms available to get to resolve the problem. It's not like though it's just like written in um, stone that until the speaker is elected, Ted Lieu can't get a dopey classified briefing, which he probably doesn't need to do anyway. And if he does do, it's probably like um, counterproductive for everyone involved. Um, so anyway, I'm just ranting. He thinks he's, he's involved in some sort of a popularity contest. I, I want to get him a vote for Pedro shirt. Napoleon died. So, to have a, a dance off to see who's the coolest kid. <laughs> I would like to judge a congressional dance off. All right, yes. thanks, Jenny, and thanks everybody. I'll uh, take care. Talk to you soon, and have a wonderful evening and whatever. Bye bye. <laughs>